Boom, put boom, 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 Hello, 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 hello. Hello. I'm just doing something a little different, catching you off guard, Adam. I, I yeah, then I just went back to the old thing. I also had like a, a fire engine going by my house, so it just felt good to be like, ooh, with the fire engine too. So. <laughs> you were pulling the Lorelei. Ooh. <laughs> I my dog doesn't bark or howl, she just mumbles. Uh so <laughs> it always feels Very like cool. she's wanting. Like she wants to say something, but like she's afraid. So she just kind of says it under her breath. Like, I feel like that's very fitting for you to have a dog that mumbles. Yeah, because she's like, I'm never going to get a word in edgewise. That guy's always talking. So it's probably like, I would have something to say if someone would listen. (laughs) All right. So man, the shows have started up again this week. Like all my like my standard weekly shows are back. Like my 911 and my rookie. Uh, rookie fed i think started last night so i'm gonna get to watch that on hulu like i'm excited but like some of the other stuff that i've been watching this week um of course it continued with the patient oh supreme ma chef's kiss um handmaid's tale is back season five i think this is the final season but if not there's one more it's either this one or the next one it's going to be the final season um I was like, I don't know if Handmaid's Tale is going to be all that good. And then like, it really started to get into it. And I was like, oh, Handmaid's Tale is back, baby. <laughs> well, so it's I- tough for season, for shows that get later into those in like later years. You got to keep coming up with new things to talk about. And that could be like the downfall of so many shows. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to see where the shows are going and, and the direction they're taking. Um, of course, the big talk has been the new show Dahmer on Netflix. I have to say, um, Evan Peters so far has done an amazing job and please get him some therapy after this because he's going to need it after playing this role. I I was read read an article where he was like, you know, he's got a plan for dealing with this. It was like a really not not great for the headspace type of character to play, which totally makes sense. No, because ugh. And I get it, like the the victims' families are not happy with this because, of course, it's very re-traumatizing, and like you don't want any copycats out there. Um, I I am only a couple episodes in, so I can't say that it has glamorized Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't know that it's. I I think that's like the issue they don't want to make him because Ryan Murphy, you know, he's the one that does American Horror Story, and kind of mm-hmm. he does kind of glamorize the horror. But from what I have seen so far. He doesn't glamorize it, but he shows you how sick Dahmer truly was. Like that man was sick and twisted in the head. Which is, I mean, just all the more scary, I guess, today. It's, it's, yeah. Again, I'm glad it's a real person. I mean, instead of it being like, you know, Pinhead or something, it's scarier because this is like an actual, this is real. This is an actual person. So I'm glad that Evan Peters does have a plan to like work on this, you know, after being in that headspace because man, that'll mess you up. It'll, it'll really mess you up. Um, and then Hulu has a new show called reasonable doubt. Um, it's only got a couple of episodes out and it's about an attorney. And, um, well, I'm still actually trying to figure out what it's about. Like it's an attorney and then a, a guy played by Michael Ely, who was in prison for murder, um it gets out and now where are we going from here and then the the show actually starts off with a murder 
So it's like, is this the murder he's accused of? Is this a different murder? Like what's going on here? So I'm intrigued. It's directed by Kerry Washington from um, um, Scandal. Scandal. Yes. So, but there you go. That's my update for you. Uh, I've just been kind of stuck on my main ones right now. Uh, you know, the the new Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, and you've got She-Hulk, and of course, rewatching Bones, and then the rewatch of uh, a whole series that in the last week that I'm going to talk about for the A-side. So, uh, but other than that, I haven't really seen any movies or anything. It's It feels like I saw Avatars getting re-released into theaters, so I am, I'm wondering if theaters are drastically going to have to change because I don't think that, you know, 30 screen multiplexes are going to be needed anymore. Mm. Yeah, which is sad. I, I love going to the movies. It used to be an event. And I, I, I don't know if it's the, the three times I've gone since, you know, they, they've reopened. It's just been, it, it feels like going to a, you know, a car, you know, you went to this carnival as a kid and they really don't update anything over 20 years. And you go back and you're like, oh, this used to be cool, but now like half of it's closed and, you know, they never have any popcorn and just three people working. And it just it has sort of a ghost town feel to it. So I guess that's kind of made me feel weird when I go to the theater. So that had nothing to do with the movies. Yeah. Oh, speaking of movies, I did see two really amazing movies recently. Ooh. Um, bullet train with, with brad pitt which everybody is like that's good and i'm like actually it's surprisingly good and witty and funny it is violent don't get me wrong there is a lot of violence um but it's really funny like i was surprised my daughter and i were both shocked at how witty and humorous it is i i have not seen it yet i've had friends who've seen it i two different groups try to get me to go with them to the theater, but I just had other things going on. So uh, I've heard really good things. And I, one of these nights, I'm just going to dive in. The other one you should see, you absolutely need to see Bullet Train, but the other one you should see is The Woman King with Viola Davis. And it's getting all sorts of like Oscar buzz and it feels way too early in the year for that. So it's- Man, it is amazing. Like I left there like, holy cow. And then my mom went a couple days later and she, te- and mom, as we know, mom can be like Meh, on some movies, a lot of movies, but even mm-hmm. mom was like, it was excellent. Oh, that's awesome. And I need to find more, more hours in the day would be helpful. Yeah. Wouldn't it be? <laughs> not, i mean not if i had to go to work but to, to do all the other just stuff, to do like, all the other stuff yeah like i don't yeah. want to expand the the day to 28 hours and then have four of them be taken up by work so <laughs> i don't think that that would be a fun improvement oh man um <clears throat> so um this week it's episode 110 that means that i get to start which is awesome as I have been trying to add more structure to my life, I decided to do a three-part loosely connected. Uh, last week, we talked uh, about uh, Shadow and Bone. Uh, these are three different fantasy series that are available to stream now. Uh, this is chapter number two. Uh, and this one, um, I think just I stumbled upon last week winter when I was spending a lot of time indoors and needed to find new shows to watch. And it was January of 2021. So not even last winter, but the winter before last for the first season. And 
it's probably because I'd watched, you know, all the chilling adventures of Sabrina and, you know, I've got all these other fantasy shows on there, but never heard of the show. Uh, did not know that it was based on a cartoon from the early 2000s. Uh, I know there are probably a lot of blind spots in my cultural uh, knowledge, but uh, young children's cartoons from like 2004 through 2008 is a complete black zone for me. I missed those completely. Uh, so I, I had no idea that this was a thing, um, but it is called Fate the Winx Saga. And it updates a early 2000s cartoon, which originally was produced and created uh, in Italy for the shoot off of Nickelodeon and then eventually made its way to the US, but was called Winx Club. And the Winx Club uh, was a group of fairies that are going to a boarding school in the other world. So now we've got, you know, a very sort of Harry Potter vibe to it. And then her, the main character, Bloom, who is a fairy with fire powers, uh, Stella, Aisha, Tara, and Yuza, all different fairies, one a light fairy, a water fairy, an earth fairy, and a mind fairy, and they've got wings, and it's very early 90s sort of modern, like American adaptation style anime, uh, and it was a, evidently a huge hit, but in 2000, or early, early 2000, 19 is when they started production and the showrunner for this is brian young who's the guy who does does you know american vampire diaries and it's definitely got a riverdale vampire diaries like modern cw teen docudrama d uh a little bit of light to it some cool uh special effects but for the most part, it feels like a rift on a lot of scenes or a lot of uh, themes that we've seen before, mm -hmm. whether that is, you know, like this group of people that are all intermingled relationship wise, which you've got in Riverdale or even going back to, you know, Buffy and the Vampire Slayer, where you've got a main hero and then a team that are all kind of working together under the auspicious direction of an elder member or a you know Yoda type figure. Uh, Bloom is, you know, in the live action version, a person from Earth, which is different from the other world, who, much like Harry Potter, was delivered at a house after a disaster and grew up thinking she was a regular normal human until she gets pulled to uh, the magical school. So you got the Harry Potter theme right there. But what makes this quite interesting is that the little twists on things, and I guess I'm not the type of person who get super upset when I see variations on the same story, because I think if we think about everything, you know, you could, you know, deconstruct it back to four or five main themes. So it's the fact that it's not 100% original, it doesn't really bother me at all, but that might also be because I'm a theater person and like everyone has seen 10 different versions of Macbeth or, you know, you've got a little bit different each time. So I think that changes a perception. Mm -hmm. It's got those sort of, universal themes. Bloom is the, you know, chosen one, the one with amazing power. What it does a little bit differently, and the, the original writer who wrote the uh, cartoon, Ignacio Straffi, uh, talked about the fact that this was going to be for the kids who watched the cartoon when they were younger and now are in young adult, teenage, 20-something land. And it's going to be a much different story. And he said, the neat part is there were things that they couldn't you know, explore because of their you know, target audience that they always wanted to explore within that world. And now they'll have the opportunity to do that in the live action show. The biggest difference visually is that the Winx Club 
is bright pastels. It's, you know, that very cartoonish look to it. And Fate, the Wink Saga feels more like any Twilight, late Harry Potter. Everybody's, you know, in you know, normal modern dress. You know, they are slightly color coded by, you know, their powers and how their magic, you know, the color that their magic shows. But it's really not as, you know, sledgehammer as it is in the cartoon mm -hmm. you think back to when we went the x-men cartoon and you know you've got wolverine in blue and yellow with you know the big spikes on his on his uh helmet basically and then we get to the, the movie and everybody's just wearing leather and uh they don't even <laughs> have any colors they're like oh no we're in the real world now so we gotta like we can't use colors because that'll show that we're edgy uh the biggest difference is yeah they're just normal uh teenagers um it does have like a the first season you know you've got the fish out of water dropped into this magical so it has a lot of the notes of you know the early harry potter books mm -hmm. and movies but then the content is so much more it's dropping them in like on their last year uh where these are you know burgeoning adults uh the casting was done very smartly and that the only american who's in the cast is the outcast so she already should like just already sounds different and seems different. Everybody else is a British actor. Uh, it is a lot of fun from a just sort of sit down and watch it thing. I am actually a little disappointed now because I'm I'm halfway through the second season and I've just been enjoying it for sort of, you know, what it is, a, you know, teen romance drama action set in a mystical land where everybody's a fairy. And if they're not a fairy, they're Bruce Lee. <laughs> and now... I've doing some research fell down. I don't know if it's a, it's a rabbit hole or one of those things where you just, you learn too much. And after what, you know, doing some research and, and reading from people who were huge fans of the show and how things that they, you know, uh, were upset about not being in the series and, you know, even YouTube videos where people are, you know, comparing things that happened in the original series and things that were taken out for the new things and how it's lost the soul. It's one of those things where now I know too much. Mm -hmm. like before I was just enjoying it for what it was I was like oh it's just I just stumbled upon it here season two I mean they got some magic there's some fairies it's kind of interesting the, the acting is not horrible uh it's also not a lot you know it's the scripts are very tr you know tv trite so right you're not getting a lot to work with uh but now that I know all the like the drama behind it and one thing that I didn't even know that I would be upset about and that now I've learned about more about the original cartoon that bothers me is one of the big parts of the Winx Club was that they were not only fairies, but they were extremely technologically advanced. So you had all these futuristic cars and, and devices. And they, for the TV, the live action series, took that dichotomy of having both nature and, you know, technology and working together. They took that completely out of the story. Uh, there is no mention of technology or, you know, being connected to it. There's not one of the, the Winx Club was specifically her power was to do with technology. That's all been ripped out of it. So now when I watch an episode, my brain is like a traitor because it's like, oh, that car should be flying. Uh, or, yeah. you know, they, they, they wouldn't use that. Or they would have laser swords, not regular swords. Come on. And they were like stuff that I didn't even care about or know about uh, two weeks ago is now uh, impacting my enjoyment of the show. However, if you like, you know, the Harry Potter shows, you're okay with a little bit more, you know, adult content, I would say this is definitely like teens and above, uh, you know, if, if you'd let them watch Riverdale, then you're okay. If you wouldn't let them, let them watch Riverdale, then maybe wait for a little bit. Uh, this is thoroughly enjoyable. It's quick. 
there are six episodes in the first season, seven episodes in the second season. Uh, it is the ter- perfect type of thing where you're just like at the end of the day, you're sitting down with dessert or you're having a cocktail and you just want to like zone out for a little bit and be mildly entertained. This is absolutely down your alley. And it is Fate, the Wink Saga, available on all of the devices you have that you can get your Netflix subscription on. And uh, I think you will enjoy it. And then next week, we will talk about part three of the streaming fantasy series of another one that you could go watch uh, that I have been enjoying, but have felt very roller coaster about. Oh, I like that tease. Trying to remember some of some of what you taught me in radio from you know 15 years ago. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right. So when I saw that the email came through because you sent me all your links, you know, so I can update the website. I, all I can think about was the cartoon. So I didn't even realize that there was like a live human version. Yeah, I had I, I was the exact opposite. I was like, oh, here's the show. Like, yeah, it's clearly like a knockoff of Harry Potter, Percy Jackson, all that, but. It was, you know, still pretty enjoyable, but yeah, I guess I totally missed that. It it was huge, evidently. I have no idea, but that's cool. All right. So another fantasy series that you can check out right now. And you don't have to go spend $4.99 or order it from Amazon from a dodgy website. Uh, Just to build on that, you know, I did the Michael J. Fox thing a couple weeks ago with Love Love or Money or for Love or Money and Doc Hollywood. Uh, And then I had to buy you know, those to watch them because they're not available anywhere. So I bought DVDs and I don't know if I just, I think I clicked on those, one of those, like buy all three (laughs) (laughs) because I have like two other packages have arrived with Michael J. Fox movies that I did not plan on purchasing. So either Amazon is just like, Oh, we got an extra, send it to Adam. He'll watch it. (laughs) Or, Or I, I really got to pay more attention when I'm hitting checkout. Oh my gosh. That is the most Adam thing you've said this entire podcast. That I got to pay more attention? That they, <laughs> yes, because you probably just put it in the cart and it was like, buy all three. And you're like, ah, whatever. Yeah, I'd be like, hey, I do like all three of those things. <laughs> I love how sometimes it makes no sense though. Because you'll scroll down, you'll be like, okay, oh, I'm getting this, you know, pair of socks. And they're like, would you like a basketball and this picture of Jesus? I was like, um, <laughs> wow. Maybe, <laughs> you're making, I don't you're know You're making the some connection. assumptions there yeah, I don't about know the connection. what I'm going to be doing with these socks. <laughs> no, I don't know the connection there at all. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be hooping for the Lord. <laughs> you might. You never know. You might. <laughs> In 10 years, I'm going to be so mad when like Liberty Networks or something puts out a basketball movie called Hooping for the Lord and I didn't copyright it. You you know what? You 100% are, but we have proof right here today. You thought of it first. Well, yeah, honestly, that I'd have to be paying the, like, the cost to be like, no, I think someone will make a movie called Hooping with the Lord. <laughs> it's not going to be me, but I'm just, it's such a great title, right? <laughs> Can't be the dumbest thing that's ever been copyrighted, but. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, all right. So there we go. Is that the A side? That is the A side. Go check out Fate the Wink Saga if you like teenagers, magic, and dialogue that sometimes doesn't hit the mark. So do you remember a couple of weeks? It was episode 105, Adam. We talked about actress Lana Turner and the murder of her boyfriend, Johnny Stampinato, by her daughter, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, 
it's which is weird because as anyone who knows me remembering things is not exactly on my uh top 10 list <laughs> so while i was researching that time magazine had an article about like the most scandalous crimes of the century and that's how i came across this week's uh, b-side Excellent. and this week we are talking about roscoe conkling arbuckle aka fatty arbuckle so obviously there's a reason it made time and it's because fatty arbuckle as he was known was a silent film star roscoe arbuckle was born march 24th in smith center kansas he was huge in the silent film era he mentored charlie chaplin and bob hope oh wow he also brought vaudeville star buster keaton which i know you know who he is because you're big Mm -hmm. into theater he brought him into the movie business. He was one of the highest paid actors in the 1920s. And he signed a contract with Paramount Pictures in the 1920s at one point, which would be equivalent to, in and that time period, almost a million dollars. Betty Arbuckle, one of nine children of his mother, Mary E. Gordon and William Goodrich Arbuckle. He weighed 13 pounds at birth. The fact that she had to deliver a 13 pound baby in 19, uh, in, uh, 1887. Yeah. Ridiculous. And, and in that time period to go through nine births, and that seems kind of amazing. Uh, yeah. So his, his, his biological dad, which, well, obviously his dad actually believed that maybe that wasn't actually his kid because he was 13 pounds and both of his parents were really small. He was his, it was just. He just happened yeah. to be a big baby. And people going to talk. Right. So he was actually named after Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York, who was a, a big time playboy. And the dad despised him. So it was kind of like a, it was kind of a, a, a knock, like a, he was throwing shade at his own kid, really. By yeah. Naming like, that. I don't think you're mine. So I'm going to name you after a guy I hate. Like, okay, let's just skip ahead to therapy. Yeah, exactly. So his mom, uh, his mom was really traumatized after his birth and it resulted in chronic health problems for her. And she passed away 11 years later. So when Roscoe was about two, the family moved to Santa Ana, California from Kansas, and he began performing um, at the age of eight years old with the Frank Bacon Company in Santa Ana, California. So he enjoyed performing and continued to do so until his mom passed away in 1898 when he was 11. His dad, again, not thinking that he was his, actually um, treated him really harshly. And he actually refused to support him. So uh, Roscoe had to get odd jobs and he got an odd job in a hotel. He also had a habit of singing while he worked. And a professional singer one time heard him singing and invited him to perform in an amateur talent show. It seems it was like an early version, an early mold for the gong show. The show consisted of an audience judging acts by clapping or jeering with bad acts being pulled off the stage with a shepherd's hook. Gong show. Or just like Uh, a very bad talent show. Well, that's that too. So apparently um, Roscoe, I keep wanting to call him fatty, but Roscoe sang and he danced. He did a little bit of, you know, joking around or whatever, but the audience wasn't impressed. So as soon as he sees the the hook, like coming from the side of the stage, 
he starts doing like doing flips and he somersaults into the orchestra pit audience goes crazy he wins the competition begins a career in vaudeville all because he panicked and did some something that he normally wouldn't do and who's to say nothing great comes out of pure panic right (laughs) so on august 6th of 1908 roscoe had found love and he ends up marrying an actress named minta durfee you know how showmances be (laughs) right minta was actually an actress and she starred in many early comedies uh with roscoe arbuckle they were kind of a strange couple though because roscoe as an adult was a very large man obviously he was a 13 pound baby yeah whereas minta was very short and petite roscoe was like 300 pounds Uh, you know opposites tracked they do be attracting. Yeah. I think, so, uh, I think, was, was it, who said that best? That they, Paula Abdul. Paula Abdul. Yeah, pa- pa- Paula Abdul said that best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so Roscoe moves on from vaudeville and begins a film career with the Sea League Polyscope Company in July of 1909 when he appears in a film called Ben's Kid. He actually caught his big break in 1913 and moved to Universal Pictures and became a star in uh, Mac Sennett's Keystone Cops comedy. Again, he's like 300 pounds. So his large size was part of his comedic appeal. Mm -hmm. He himself was very self-conscious about his weight and he didn't want to get the cheap laughs by like getting stuck in a doorway or breaking a chair or anything like that. And he actually hated the nickname Fatty, even though that's what he went by. Yeah, I feel like that's that's fair. Like you're like, oh great, everybody knows me by this name, and I'm famous, but still kind of hate it because it's quite mean. Right. I'm sure it wasn't the first time it was called that. Probably didn't have great connotations before, you know, celebrity. Yeah. So in 1914, Paramount Pictures made an offer that was unheard of at the time. It was $1,000 a day plus 25% of all profits, which in today's money would be $16,545. So they offered that a day, like I said, at the time that was unheard of. And they offered him 25% of all profits and complete artistic control with movies. His movies were so popular that in 1921, they offered him a three-year, $3 million contract, which would be like $49 million, almost $50 million. Wow. Solid. Which, I mean, not bad, right? I'll take it. I mean, heck, I'll take $1 million at this point. Depending on the day, I'll bend over for a dollar. I'll always bend over for a dollar. <laughs> so by 1916, he starts experiencing some health problems. He gets an infection in his leg that becomes a carbuncle which is a cluster of boils. This carbuncle was so severe that doctors had actually thought about amputating his leg. Fortunately for Roscoe, he was able to keep his leg, but he had been prescribed morphine for the pain. And it would later be said that he was addicted to the morphine. It happens. I'm sure very the regulations were a little different back then. I was going to say that. I was going to say people get addicted today. So imagine back then when they didn't have the, the protocols that they do today. So he's on the mend from his carbuncle and he starts his own company called Com- uh, Comic 
Kamik. And he starts it with Joseph Schneck. Kamik produced some of the best short pictures of the silent era. Roscoe, despite this fact, ends up transferring his controlling interest in the company to Buster Keaton in 1921 and accepts that Paramount picture offer for $3 million for 18 films in three years. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of movies. Six, mo- six movies a year? Gee whiz. Like I mentioned, he really, really disliked the name Fatty. That had been his nickname for years and years and years. Uh, he was also known, though, as the Prince of Wales, but not like overseas Wales. It was yeah, W-H-A-L-E-S like- and the Balloonatic. Sorry, the balloonatic? Mm-hmm. I guess because he was that, so large, like a balloon, like blown up. That was one very mean 12-year-old that came up with Man. that. Man. No, no adult would think that that was a child. Balloonatic. Unfortunately, even though he didn't like the name Fatty, it actually identified the characters that he portrayed on screen, usually like pretty naive, like you would think like the hayseed, you know, kind of bumbly, stupid. Mm-hmm. Not, but, not a great look. No, which is completely opposite of Roscoe himself. Of course, we know characters like Martin, who played uh, Big Mama, you know, Big Mama's House, and Tyler Perry, who's done Medea. Well, Roscoe Arbuckle actually did that back in his day. He portrayed a female character named Miss Fatty in the film Miss Fatty's Seaside Lovers. Hmm. While he was doing that, though, he discouraged anyone from calling him Fatty off screen. And when they did so, he would say... I've got a name, you know. Oh, I know, right? It's kind of, it's kind of sad. So we're into his three-year, three million dollar contract on September fifth of nineteen twenty-one. He decides to take a break from filming, as he should, because eighteen films in three years is a lot. Yeah, three million dollars. It'll, it'll get you some places. Well, while he was filming, he ended up suffering second-degree burns to his backside. So he's recovering from this. He's taking some time off. He goes uh, with some friends to San Francisco, two of his friends, Lowell Sherman and Fred Fishback. The three of them check into three different rooms at the St. Francis Hotel. It was rooms 1219, 1220, and 1221. 1219 was for Roscoe and uh, his friend Fred Fishback to share. Mm-hmm. 1221 was for Lowell Sherman and 1220 in between was the designated party room. Yes, I mean any good tour should have a party room. I mean that way <laughs> at the end you're actually you're doing it for the establishment. Then they only have one trash room. I mean you're just looking out for you know, the holiday. Looking out for the exactly looking, looking out, out for, for the, the motel, hotel, the motel, hotel the ho- and the holiday. Yeah, holiday. Inn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was so close we were like oh, oh was so that, that was one of those moments where if we'd been in person we would have totally down. done it we yeah. totally would have done it and so of course it's a party room you got to invite the ladies you know the absolutely ladies. i mean otherwise it's just a room with dudes that are all <laughs> sitting together now <laughs> So during the party, there's a 30-year-old aspiring actress. Her name is Virginia Rapp, and she ends up getting really, really ill in 1219, which was Roscoe's room. She Registered up, to him, so. Right. So she ends up getting examined by a hotel doctor who said that her symptoms 
were most likely caused by, you know, over drinking. And he gave her some morphine to calm her down. Uh, she wasn't <laughs> taken to the hospital or anything like that. They just expected her to recover from, they were throwing morphine at everything back then. I was, I was like, oh, they were like, oh, she's been drinking a lot. But just in case, let's <laughs> give, give her some morphine. morphine. Yeah. So, like, what other things? They were like, oh, this man is in a car. Well, actually, that would make sense to get morphine if you were in a car accident. Oh, well, yes. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> this guy just got divorced. Give him some morphine. <laughs> well, you might need it after that. So, okay. So Virginia, you know, like I said, she's examined. They say, oh, she's probably just drunk. Give her a little morphine. She'll be all right. Well, she didn't The recover. 1910s version of rub some dirt on it. <laughs> right. I just give it some morphine. <laughs> Put some Robitussin on it. Um, yeah. So she's she's not hospitalized or anything, and they, they wait. Well, she doesn't get better, so she's taken to the hospital three days later. They wait three days? Three days. With her in the hotel room? Three days. And they weren't in Vegas, right? Because I'm starting to like, feel like they've heard this story. No, they're in San Francisco. So at the hospital, which was the Wakefield Sanatorium, which is actually a place for um, known for giving abortions, Virginia, Virginia's companion, her name, Bambina Maud Delmont, she talks to a a doctor and she tells a doctor there that it was Roscoe Arbuckle's fault that her friend is in the shape she's in. He says she rapes her. he, He raped her. Oh, my. so the doctor examines Virginia, but finds no evidence of rape. She dies the following day in the hospital from periantitis, which was caused by a rupture um, in her bladder. So now like she drank, she drank so much her bladder burst. Well, we're going to get to that. So let's oh, go back okay. to the party. All right. The day of the party, the blue, the booze is flowing. It's early in the day. Roscoe's still in his pajamas. And he's letting guests in. Now, keep in mind, this is the 1920s, so the booze was flowing, even though it was during Prohibition. Yeah, well, you know, you can always find a guy who knows a guy. (laughs) That afternoon, Roscoe gets dressed, and he gets ready to leave to go sightseeing. And that's when he stumbles upon Virginia. Okay, like I mentioned, she's in the hospital. She passes from a bladder a bladder rupture and she had also um suffered from chronic urinary tract infections which is Ouch. a condition that the liquor um irritated dramatically yeah so now she's died police have to get involved mm-hmm. so the police um they interview several people now remember she's at the hospital with her friend bambina maud delmont and Bambina was the one, Bambina was actually notorious for setting up people um, to blackmail them. Oh, she well, says, so she's just going back to the well. She, yeah, exactly. She says that it was Fatty Arbuckle that raped Virginia after coercing her into the bedroom. After an extended period of time, she says that the partygoers heard Virginia scream in the bedroom. She said that she tried to open up the door and she couldn't. She even tried to kick it in and failed. And that's when Fatty Arbuckle, Roscoe Arbuckle, opened the door and Virginia was naked and bleeding behind him. Roscoe says that he went to his room, 1219, to change his clothes before going sightseeing. Virginia was already inside the room vomiting. She was in the bathroom. He claims that he helped to clean her up. Then he laid her down on the bed, thought she was just drunk and left her. He goes back to the party for a few minutes. When he comes back to his room, she's on the floor 
He helps her back onto the bed. And that's when he calls for help. Police conclude that maybe it was, in fact, Roscoe's fault. Maybe he did, in fact, rape her. And that it was the weight of his body laying on top of her that eventually caused her bladder to rupture. Wow. He's arrested. Interesting science. Yeah. So he's arrested and he's charged with manslaughter on September 17th of 1921. Well, of course, he's a big time film star. So this is going to go huge. It's Mm -hmm. like a big scandal. There's a press conference and Virginia's manager, Al Semnatcher, accuses Roscoe of using a piece of ice to simulate sex with her. And that leads to her injuries and that there's no evidence because it was ice and it melted. Wow. That that's like a, you know, law and order type. It's this, it just gets so wild here. So then of course, as things do, the story morphs and changes. And then by the time it gets to the newspapers, the newspapers have changed it from ice to a Coca-Cola bottle or a champagne bottle rather than a piece of ice. Mm -hmm. Roscoe, of course, continues to deny any wrongdoing. And Maude Delmont makes a statement, of course, she, she goes to the police and makes a statement in an attempt to extort money from Roscoe's attorneys. Again, kind of like the O.J. Simpson trial, this was a, a media circus. It is the epitome of yellow journal- journalism. Por- uh, newspapers are, are, are portraying Roscoe as a lecher who used his weight to overpower innocent girls. William Randolph Hearst, of course, who you know, um, his company has massive organizations yeah. in nationwide newspapers. He takes the story and runs with it. He's exploiting the situation. He's got these sensationalized stories. I mean, it's just, it's for the 1920s, this is unheard of, right? This is the the big drama. And everyone's like, oh, well, this would be totally different without TMZ. No, we had guys back then. Right. This, This story makes him so much money that he himself, William Randolph Hearst himself says that it sold more newspapers in any event since the sinking of the Lusitania. Which wasn't that the war that he helped start? Because uh-huh. he, yeah. Yeah. So imagine that. So of course there's people calling for the death of Roscoe Arbuckle. I mean, this is like, it is just a media frenzy. So of course the people that are close to him are like, no, this is a good man. You know, this is not something that he would do. He was actually really shy around women. Um, He was described as the most chaste man in pictures, but studio executives, unlike now, um, feared the negative publicity and they pretty much dropped him and they ordered all of his industry friends and fellow actors to do the same and to not speak up for him. However, Charlie Chaplin, who, by the way, the more I learn about Charlie Chaplin, what a freaking cool dude he was Hmm. charlie chaplin did a lot of good and stood up for a lot of people well he was actually sort of the leader of hollywood at the time yeah so he was actually yes he was actually in britain at the time and he told reporters that he could not and would not believe that roscoe had anything to do with virginia's death he said he knew roscoe to be a quote genial easygoing type who would not hurt a fly Buster Keaton, remember he brought Buster Keaton into Vaudeville. 
um, and sold him his uh, business. Right. He did make one public statement in support of Roscoe's innocence, and it kind of got him in trouble with the studio where he worked. Mm-hmm. All right. So studios had all the power. I mean, you couldn't. They had all the power. It was like it's like old school, like baseball. There wasn't free agency. It was like, oh, you want to play? Then here's your contract for the rest of your life. <laughs> just using evil demon voice there. <laughs> Speaking, okay, just totally off the subject right now. But I say evil demon voice, and my uh, home camera starts spinning around like it's you know head is spinning around. Okay, that's so, weird. Good to know, you guys. Yeah, yeah. Fun times. So maybe not say that anymore. Okay. Yeah, no. Right. I mean, I love demon voices. <laughs> Put that so, out there as well. Of course, we know in our time, we had the O.J. Simpson trial, the scandal. It was front page worthy. Um, I mean, so even it, just recently, uh, the, the couple with the pirate guy, Johnny Depp. And Johnny Amber, Depp and Amber, Amber Heard. That was like, it was like every day. It was everywhere. So imagine trying to find a jury who was completely unbiased. I mean, no. yes, we didn't have like the social media back then, but this was in every newspaper across the country. Right. And when you don't have other options, this is the thing you read. You read the thing. Exactly. So the prosecutor was a man named Matthew Brady, who was the San Francisco district attorney. He was an ambitious man. He made plans to run for governor. So, you know, he was going to make the most out of this, right? Yeah, he was he was like, oh, this is this is my time. This is this is how I get on. This is how I shine, baby. So, of course, he's making public announcements of Roscoe's guilt, and he's even pressuring witnesses to make false statements. But we'll get into. Mm. So the falser than their already statements. The trial begins on November 14th of 1921 in San Francisco. Roscoe has hired as his lead counsel Gavin McNabb who was just a local dude who had a good name for himself. Not like a high-priced super lawyer. Yeah. The principal witness was a person named Zay Preben, who had actually testified that um, Virginia had told her that Roscoe hurt me on her deathbed. So at the beginning of the trial, Roscoe tells his estranged wife, Minta Durfee, that he did not do anything to harm Virginia and she believed him and she stood by him in court. She was there every single day. She actually was on the other side of the country and flew to San Francisco to be by his side in court. The public though was so anti Roscoe um, Arbuckle that one day Minta Durfee was actually shot at while entering the court. Yeah. They missed, but she was actually shot at. Mm. So Matthew Brady's first witnesses during the trial were Betty Campbell, who was a model who had also attended the party. And she testified that she saw uh, Roscoe with a smile on his face hours after the alleged rape occurred. Grace Hulton was a local hospital nurse who testified that it was very likely that Roscoe Arbuckle had raped Virginia and had bruised her body in the process. And then another witness from Matthew Brady, the ambitious uh, district attorney, uh, was a Dr. Edward Heinrich, who's a local criminologist that claimed that the fingerprints on the door in the hallway proved that Virginia had in fact tried to flee, but that Roscoe had stopped her putting his hand over hers. Tell me this doesn't sound like a movie in itself. Yeah, this is some, uh, some good casting and uh, script writing there involved. Yeah. 
Then there was Dr. Arthur Beardsley, the hotel doctor who had examined Virginia, who initially had said there was no physical damage to her initially, remember? Mm-hmm. Well, then he testified that an external force seemed to have damaged the bladder. Well, during the cross-examination done by Gavin McNabb, Betty Campbell said, oh, well, Matthew told me that if I didn't lie, then he was going to charge me with perjury if I didn't testify against Roscoe Arbuckle. Dr. Heinrich's claim about the fingerprints on the door was actually cast into doubt by Gavin McNabb after he produced a hotel from the St. Francis Uh, a maid from the St. Francis Hotel who testified that she had actually cleaned the room before there was even an investigation. So how would there be fingerprints on the door? Dr. Beardsley admitted that Virginia had never mentioned being assaulted while he was treating her in the hotel. Gavin McNabb was even able to get nurse Holtson to admit that the rupture of Virginia's bladder could have very well been the result of cancer and that the bruises on her body could have been a result of the heavy jewelry that she'd been wearing that evening. So I'm, I'm going to be me, but also really just naively male. Is that a thing that's possible? Like, I, I don't know a lot about jewelry. I don't wear a lot of jewelry. I've never worn jewelry. I like one piece I was supposed to wear that only lasted a, a while. So I have very little knowledge. But is it possible that you can get bruises from heavy jewelry? Honestly, I would like to say no, but I, you can get bruises from anything. I mean, if you bruise easily, like I honestly, I, there have been days where I have looked at myself as I'm like changing and I see a bruise and I have no idea how I've done it. So I mean, just, that's just called, that's just called getting old. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Like, I know I do too. Like you get out of the shower, you're like, what did, was I in a, was I in a fight? fight? Yeah. What happened? It was like, oh no, you just, you slept wrong. You crossed your legs in your sleep and now you have yeah. a bruise. So honestly, I'm, I can't say, I can't say no, but it, it was enough to put doubt in their minds, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, I guess it depends on the person and, and some jewelry could be really heavy, but I'd be like, I have enough. It drives me nuts having like an eye watch and that's ridiculously light on my arm. So yeah. probably just my lack of experience. <laughs> so on November 28th, Roscoe actually testifies as the defense's final witness. He was simple and direct and he was completely, he remained like completely unfazed during his examination by his attorney. And even during the cross-examination, like he was unfazable. He said, like he said to the police that he had actually known Virginia for several years, like five, six years. She came to the party room about noon. Sometime after that, he goes to change his clothes because he was going to go on a ride into town and do some sightseeing. He said once he was in his room, he sees her vomiting in the toilet. He helps her out, you know, carries it back to the bed, goes back to the party, comes back, finds her on the floor. The exact same thing he told the police is what he testified to with no change. Then they call for help. They assume she's going to sleep it off. He goes into town, not even thinking twice about it. They got the hotel doctor to be like, she's fine. And like, you did what you did. What do you, you don't want to make you know, somebody more embarrassed if there's you know, no reason. Right. One of the things that Matthew Brady brought up in, his, um, in this trial when he was prosecuting Roscoe Arbuckle was he presented descriptions of medical descriptions that Virginia's bladder had evidence of an illness. When he asked Roscoe about this, Roscoe said he had no knowledge of this illness. It was during a cross-examination 
that another attorney, it was assistant district attorney, Leo Friedman, he grills Roscoe over the fact that he refused to call a doctor when he found out that Virginia was sick and that he argued and he argued that he refused to do so because he knew that of, of Virginia's illness and he stated this would be the perfect opportunity to rape and kill her. Wow. Roscoe remained calm and he said, I never hurt her. I never physically hurt her. I never sexually assaulted her. I never did anything to her that was inappropriate. Defense rests. Over a two-week period of testimony, there was 60 prosecution and defense witnesses total. 18 different doctors testified about Virginia Rapp and her illness. Okay. So again, defense rests. On December 4th of 1921, the jury returned after five days and they were completely deadlocked. It took nearly 44 hours of deliberation and they returned with a 10 to two not guilty verdict. So a mistrial was declared. Oh, because it's gotta be unanimous, that's right. It's gotta be unanimous. In a mistrial, prosecution can decide whether to prosecute again or to let it go. Well, again, this was somebody that was ambitious in their career. So didn't like didn't want a loss on their record. Uh-huh. So they prosecute again. Second trial begins January 11th of 1922. Brand new jury, same legal defense, same prosecution, same judge, same evidence. But this time, one of the key witnesses, Zay Preven, that had testified that Matthew Brady had forced her to lie. Or the, this time, Zay Preven testified that Matthew Brady forced her to lie. There was another witness who testified during the first trial, um, a security guard for Culver Studios. His name was Jesse Norgrad. In the original trial, he testified that Roscoe had once shown up to the studio and offered him a cash bribe in exchange for a key to Virginia's room. He claims that he wanted to play a joke on her. He says he refused to give him the key. Well, in the cross-examination, his testimony was called into question when it was revealed that he was an ex-convict who was currently charged with sexually assaulting an eight-year-old girl who was also looking for a sentence reduction from Matthew Brady in exchange for his testimony. Right. So it helped scratch my back. I'll, you know, get you out yeah. of the click. Right. Completely opposite to the first trial, Virginia's history of promiscuity and drinking was detailed in the second trial. The second trial also discredited some major um, evidence, such as his fingerprints on the hotel bedroom door. He took back his earlier testament testimony from the first trial saying that the fingerprint evidence was likely faked. Um, the defense was so convinced of an acquittal this time that they didn't even ask Roscoe to testify. His attorney, Gavin McNabb, made no closing argument. That's how confident they were. Well, this didn't sit right with some jurors and they thought that it was uh, a sign of guilt. So again, after five days and this time 40 hours of deliberation, this time the jury returns on February 3rd, deadlocked in a 10 to two. But this time it was opposite the first trial. It was in the favor of conviction. Again, it's gotta be unanimous. So (laughs) mistrial. Again, prosecutor Matthew Brady decides to try one more time. Now, now this is just at the, it's like at the almost embarrassing point where like, mm-hmm. dude, you're just throwing good money after bad. Like this, Let it go. It's, it just, it keeps looking worse the yeah. more you do this and don't, yeah. and don't get, cause like, even if you get a conviction, conviction, the question is, 
why did it take so long? Exactly. So now the time of the third trial comes around. And by this time, Roscoe Arbuckle's films had been banned. Newspapers had had months and months and months of stories about him and his supposed Hollywood orgies and sexual perversion and the murder. Maude Delmont, who was the one that initially charged him with the rape of Virginia Rapp, she's touring the country giving a one-woman show as the woman who signed the murder charge against Arbuckle. And she's yeah. lecturing on the evils of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, not at all a opportunistic move on her part, I'm sure. No. I will say that this trial moved pretty quickly, though, because this next trial, the second trial ended February 3rd. Third trial begins March 13th of 1922. Like, at this point, do you think they just gave up on trying to find anybody who didn't know anything about they the case? Had they had to. Just like, they were like, like next, next 12 people, get yeah. in here. We're doing it again. Right. We're going again, folks. Going yeah. again. So after the second time of Gavin McNabb being so convinced that he didn't even have Roscoe testify and he didn't even do a closing um, statement, this time he was like, I'm not taking any chances. Nope. Mm-mm. So but- he is very aggressive in his defense. He completely tears apart the prosecution's case. He's got these long, aggressive examinations and cross-examinations of each and every witness. He also managed to get in even more evidence about Virginia's past and medical history. There's yet another hole in the prosecution's case because Zay Priven, the one who testified the first time that Virginia had told her that uh, Roscoe had raped her, and then the second time said Matthew had told her she had to, you know, perjure herself or whatever. Yeah. Well, this time she's missing. She's out of the country because she's fleeing police custody, so she couldn't testify. Oh, wow. <laughs> so just like the first trial, Roscoe gets on the stand in his defense. He's the final witness. And he, of course, he's testifying in his own behalf. And he maintains that, you know, I had nothing to do with her being sick. I did not attack her physically or sexually. I didn't do anything but try to help her. I mean, and it's like he gives us really heartfelt testimony. Mm-hmm. Buster Keaton is said to have been in the courtroom and provided really important evidence to Roscoe's innocence. Maude Delmont was involved in a prostitution extortion and blackmail ring. Oh, there you go. The lady who's now touring. Uh-huh. Yeah. Maybe uh, had a financial motive. Weird. Possibly could be her motive, you think? Yeah. So during, her, uh, during his closing arguments, Gavin McNabb, talks about how flawed the case was against Roscoe from the very start and how Matthew Brady fell for these outlandish charges courtesy of Maude Delmont, who Gavin described as the, quote, complaining witness who never witnessed. (laughs) So during during deliberations began April 12th, so just over a month. And I mean, it's no, if it won't fit, you must acquit, but it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty catchy. It's pretty catchy. Um, so it only took six minutes for the jury to return with a unanimous not guilty verdict. Five of those six minutes were actually spent writing a formal statement of apology to Roscoe Arbuckle for putting him through this entire ordeal. Wow. The, jury, the jury statement read by the foreman said, acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done him. We feel also that it was our only only our plain duty to give him this exoneration under the evidence 
for there was not even the slightest proof adduced to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story on the witness stand, which we all believed. The happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair for which Arbuckle, so the evidence shows, was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who sat listening for 31 days to evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. So they read this statement of apology and then the jury foreman personally handed that statement to Roscoe Arbuckle, who is said to have kept that as a treasured memento for the rest of his life. Then one by one, the 12 person jury plus the two alternates walked over to his defense table where they either shook his hand or embraced him and personally apologized to him. The entire jury then posed for a photo with Roscoe Arbuckle. Wow. <laughs> that last part, it's like, oh, that's like, it was, it was like sweet. Like, oh man, law is working. And it was like, oh, we had to throw in a photo up. Right, right. Ah, not a great moment. So some experts have discussed what could have happened to Virginia and how her bladder might've ruptured. And some say it could have actually been the result of an abortion that she might've had a short time before the party. Her organs had actually been destroyed and it was impossible for a pregnancy test. Because of the alcohol that was consumed at the party, Roscoe was forced to plead guilty to one count of violating the Volstead Act, which the Volstead Act was um, the National Prohibition Act of the 66 U.S. Congress, which was just enacted to carry out the 18th Amendment, which prohibited alcohol. So just the law stating you couldn't drink, basically. Yeah, and Volstead's become sort of like a tongue-in-cheek thing within the beer community i mean i used to work i used to work at a brew pub and they had a special room called the volstead room and then there was a portrait of volstead made out of beer bottle caps <laughs> uh, just sort of it's like a you know throwback to uh it didn't work buddy right but uh yeah he was he was not the most beloved figure in the world so he had to pay a fine of 500 dollars, which today would be like eight thousand eight hundred and fifteen dollars um, at the time of his acquittal, he owed over $700,000, which today, $12,340. He owed that to his attorneys for legal fees for the three criminal trials. He had to sell his house and all of his cars to pay off some of the debt. I mean, three, three uh, full-on trials. Ain't cheap. No, matter, they, no and those guys aren't you know, working on minimum wage. Well, of course, his, his, his career, his, his popularity, his reputation is completely damaged. Even though he's acquitted and got this apology, it just didn't really do anything to restore his reputation in the public. Yeah, it wasn't like O.J. Simpson suddenly was back on, you know, covering football games or bringing in police squad movies. Exactly. So William H. Hayes, who was the, the head of the newly formed Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America Censor Board, cited that Arbuckle was an example of poor morals in Hollywood. And he, after his acquittal, just days after his acquittal, he banned him from ever working in U.S. movies again. He also requested that any showings of any of his films be canceled. And most people complied. In December of that year, though, public pressure mounted and William H. Mays decided to go ahead and lift the band. Although with the band lift, 
it still was really hard for Roscoe Arbuckle to get work as an actor. Yeah, it was more of a, you know, at that point, it's just ceremony. Mm -hmm. Oh, the band's lifted, but we told nobody to hire you for five years. So most people still declined to show his films, several of which now have no copies that are known to be in existence. One of his feature length films was that has been known to survive is called Leap Year. And Paramount decided that they weren't going to release it in the U.S. due to the scandal. It was eventually released in Europe. Well, now that his films were banned in 1922, Buster Keaton signed an agreement to give Arbuckle 35% of all future profits from his production company, Buster Keaton Comedies, hoping that it would help out um, Roscoe's financial situation. A company that may have been born out of the company that he bought. That he bought from him, yeah. Yeah. So in November of 1923, Minta Durfee files for divorce from Roscoe because she charged him with desertion. The divorce was granted in January. They had actually been separated since 1921, even though she always said he was the nicest man in the world. She said years later, you know, he was the most generous human being I've ever met. And if I had to do it all over again, I'd still marry the same man. Not a lot of divorcees will say that. I know. They were still friends. They reconciled briefly. And then she filed for divorce again. Um, this time in Paris in December of 1924. After that, well, I mean, we, we've all been there. You're in Paris. You're like, I'm changing my life. <laughs> After that, uh, Roscoe marries Doris Dean on May 16th of 1925. He tries to return to the film industry, but it was just really, really hard. He retreats into alcoholism. Minta says Roscoe only seemed to find solace and comfort in a bottle. Buster Keaton tried to help by giving him work in his films. Roscoe even wrote a story for Keaton called Daydreams in 1922. Roscoe also also allegedly co-directed scenes in Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. in 1924. Don't know how much of that, of his footage remained in the final cut. Eventually, he tries something different. He takes on a a pseudonym and he works as a director under William B. Goodrich. Well, his father's full name, William Goodrich Arbuckle, was the inspiration. That's what some people say. Another person or another rumor behind the pseudonym is that Buster Keaton was a a big punster. And he suggested that Roscoe become the director will be good. Will the pun being too obvious? He said, William be good rich. So he knows the joke. And his friends know the joke, but it's not everybody else does. Yes. Between 1924 and 1932, Roscoe directed a number of comedy shorts under the name William B. Goodrich for educational pictures, which featured lesser known comics of the day. Uh, Louise Brooks, the star of Wendy Riley Goes to Hollywood, actually spoke about her experience of working with Roscoe Arbuckle. And she said he made no attempt to direct this picture. He just sat in the director's chair like a dead man. He'd been very nice and sweetly dead ever since the scandal that ruined his career. But it was such an amazing thing for me to come in and make this broken down picture and to find my director was the great Roscoe Arbuckle. Oh, I thought he was the magnif- he was magnificent in films. He was such a wonderful dancer, a wonderful ballroom dancer in his heyday. It was like floating in the arms of a huge donut. Really wonderful. <laughs> I was like, that's again one of those things where you're like, oh, this is like a really nice compliment. And then they're like, donut. 
<laughs> okay. Could have gone with the cloud. Cloud is at least ethereal. It's wispy. So Roscoe Arbuckle and a man named Dan, Dan Coombs, one of Culver City's first mayors, reopened the Plantation Club near the Metro Goldwyn Mayor Studios on Washington wow. Boulevard. As wow. the Ros- that is not a name you can use anymore. <laughs> no, no. It was opened as the Roscoe Arbuckle Plantation Cafe on ni- uh, August 2nd of 1928. By 1930, he sold his interest and it became known as George Olson's Plantation Cafe. Later, it became the Plantation Trailer Court and then it changed its name completely, the Foreman Phillips County Barn Dance. In 1920- These people loved very long descriptive names. Seriously. In 1929, Doris Dean sues Roscoe for divorce. She charges desertion and cruelty. A couple of years later, he marries for the third time. On June Jeez. 21st, he marries Addie Oakley Dukes McPhail, later known as Addie Oakley Sheldon. They get married in Erie, Pennsylvania. In 1932, Roscoe signs a contract with Warner Brothers to star under his own name again in a series of six two real comedies that were going to be filmed in Brooklyn at the Vitaphone Studios. These six short films uh, constitute the only recordings of Roscoe's voice. The oh, yeah, only all recordings. Silent movies before that. Yes. Think about that. My voice is recorded everywhere, Seth. <laughs> so on people June, are like, could there be less recordings of this guy's voice? On June 28th of 1933, Roscoe finishes filming the last of the two rulers, four of which had already been released. He signs a contract the next day with Warner Brothers to star in a feature-length film. That night, he goes out with friends to celebrate his first wedding anniversary and the new contract with Warner Brothers. He reportedly said, he reportedly says, this is the best day of my life. Oh, foreshadowing. He suffers a heart attack later that night and dies in his sleep. He was 46 years old. Yeah. His widow. This is why you never say. This is the best, this day, is the of best day of my life. Or what's the worst that could happen? Or don't worry, it'll be fine. Yeah. Because you just tempted fate. So his wife, Addie, requests that his body be cremated as that was his wish. So again, many of his films, including his feature-length Life of the Party, survive only as worn prints with foreign language intertitles. There was not a lot of effort made back in the day to reserve original negatives. Again, a lot of his stuff has been lost and the only recording of his voice were those last reels that he recorded at the very end of his life. In popular culture, Neil Sedaka references Roscoe Arbuckle along with Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Stan Laurel, and Oliver Hardy in his 1971 song, Silent Movies. That's on the Emergence album. In 1977, Ken Russell had the biopic or biopic, Valentino, a man named Rudolf Nayarev, Stars of R- Rudolph Valentino, who dances in a nightclub before a grossly overweight, obnoxious, hedonistic celebrity called Mr. Fatty. Of course, a caricature of yeah. Roscoe Arbuckle. Very subtle. Very subtle. In the movie Gumby, titled Gumby the Movie, the supporting ca- character Fat Buckle is an affectionate reference to Roscoe Arbuckle. In 2005, jazz trumpet player Dave Douglas released the album Keystone. And he dedicated that to Roscoe Arbuckle. It contains a DVD which features the movie Fatty and Mabel Adrift that stars Roscoe Arbuckle and Mabel Normand, along with Al St. John and Luke the Dog. 
In April and May of 2006, the Museum of Modern Art, Modern Art in New York City mounted a 56-film month-long retrospective of all of his known surviving work, and they ran the entire series twice. You know, the uh, Museum of Mobden Art is always the fridge. <laughs> uh, Fatty Arbuckles is actually an American-themed restaurant chain in the UK, which is named after Roscoe Arbuckle. In 2009, the novel Devil's Garden is based on uh, the Roscoe Arbuckle trials. The main character in the story is Dashiell Hammett, a Pinkerton detective in San Francisco at the time of the trials. In the movie Return to Babylon in 2013, Roscoe Arbuckle is played by actor Brett Ashey. The scandal is described during the climax of the movie Middleman in 2020 in the remake of Perry Mason, which was on HBO. Great remake, by the way. It features a minor character named Chubby Carmichael, who, of course, is based off of Roscoe Fetty Arbuckle. Mm. Again, super subtle. Right. (laughs) And then in 2021, there was a French graphic novel called Fetty Le Premier Row de Hollywood. I don't know if I said that right or not. I was just trying my best. It sounded nice. (laughs) Uh, And it portrays the period of time in Roscoe Arbuckle's early days in Hollywood to his death. But there you go. That is the very intense, very complicated story of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. I feel like that may be the first time we've had three trials without any appeals. I would think you, I think you're right. Yeah. It's usually it's like, oh, there was an appeal and there was an appeal. And then there was like the, you know, you know, the stay of the death day and all that stuff. That was just like, no, we took three swings at this and missed it, uh, but totally running for governor. There you go. That is the story of Roscoe Fetty Arbuckle, one of the crimes of the century, according to Time Magazine. And I will say that I am very pleased with myself because at no point did I verbally say, be co-trained after you said Roscoe, even though every time <laughs> every in my time brain, you wanted to. It, there was a little voice that was just finishing it with like, Roscoe, be co-trained. I was you like, really? I'm proud of you then. I'm oh, proud of you. It's like people climbing Mount Everest and me, like not making a dumb joke. <laughs> Same level of you know, fortitude. Oh my gosh. But there you go. What do you think? I was fun. Like, I, I was funny because you said the name, you know, Fatty Arbuckle. And I'm like, that is such a great name. I don't even know if this is a real person or if it's a movie character or if it's like a, you know, Looney Tunes character. And then to hear that it was kind of all of those things. I mean, he was in Gumby. He was a real guy. He was, you know, a movie star. So that, that was kind of fun that it just kept coming out. It was like, this name could be anything. And it kind of was. Yeah, it was. That was like when I saw that. I, and I had, I remember hearing the name Fatty Arbuckle like years ago, but I never really knew who he was or what happened so I was like oh let me look into this and yeah I thought that was pretty interesting and I mean then you mentioned that it was a character on Gumby and my brain was like well maybe that's where I heard the name first probably maybe maybe but yeah so there you go all right so Adam go ahead and and, uh, get the load down of course don't forget to check the uh, site because we will have the beanies available yeah, beanies are coming up, so you should go to our site, a side, b side, podcast dot square dot site. On there, you can get 
a access to all the links that we have. Uh, if you want to decide to ruin your enjoyment of Fate the Wing Saga by learning all of the controversy behind what they didn't bring from the cartoon, all those links are available. And if you don't want to ruin it, uh, then just don't click those links. I can't go back. Uh, however, if you want to check out any of the links to Brooke's stories as well, if you want to subscribe, if you are listening to us on some device that you stumbled upon that is not your normal podcast provider or you want to make sure you subscribe, all of the links are available on our website. So do that. We've got merchandise on there. You can buy Brooke a coffee, which is very important because as pleased as I was that I didn't say Roscoe B. Co-Trade <laughs> after every time she said Roscoe, uh, I did interrupt a lot of other times. So she has to edit all of that out. So definitely needs as much coffee as you can provide. And she's in Nebraska now. So she's dealing with the Husker season. So she probably needs some some uh, coffee from that as well. So uh, go Big Red. Uh, and again, if you have a story, whether that is true crime or a mystery or something local that you know about that you might not think that everybody across uh, the globe knows about, or if you've got a movie on Netflix that you want me to watch or some other streaming service, or you have like one VHS of this movie that no one else has seen, but uh, it's the type of thing that Adam would probably end up reviewing and then be like, sorry, you can't watch it. Then just send them on over, <laughs> contact us on any of the social medias. Uh, and your feedback is really great. It's been fun since I got people being like, hey dude, like how would you do a section on something we could watch? I was like, okay, fair, good note, good note. And it's been fun to do these these last three where I know people can actually go out and uh, watch them immediately. So thank you and keep sending that feedback. Awesome. All right. Well, that was episode 110. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Brooke.